Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Today's show is going to include uh, discussions of social media and virtual reality uh, and some of the health aspects of those. Uh, After that, we'll pivot to a newer, healthier, gluten-free fiber and talk about uh, phthalate exposure uh, being a major risk for diabetes in women. After that, we have a lot of stories about advances in cancer treatment and cancer therapy and also some of the politics, a little bit of what's going on in the background as we scramble to continue our war on cancer. As I say that, I'm reminded of a old story by Bernie Siegel, who wrote Love, Medicine, and Miracles, and a, a bunch of other uh, books. Sir, Bernie was a uh, an, on, an oncology surgeon. He took out tumors for a living, and therefore he had to deal with cancer patients, at least for a little while. And gradually over time, he he developed a kinder, gentler approach and really helped a lot of people both come to terms with their cancer and also use their own innate healing systems through mind-body visualization therapy to address their cancer and its meaning and also tell the cancer to get the heck out. One of the things that relaxation therapy does is it lowers your stress levels. Lowering your stress levels improves your immune system, which is a really great idea back in the 80s and 90s when the drugs that we had for cancer took down your white count. In other words, they suppressed the immune system. You don't need more suppression on top of what we were doing with our drugs. And, you know, it wasn't that the drugs didn't work. It's just that they had unintended consequences. We'll be talking about some more unintended consequence later in the show. But to wrap up this anecdote, he tells the story of all of the visualizations that people use to imagine their white cells fighting the cancer. And in the war on cancer mode, you have some people who are there with machine guns, you know, just machining down the cancer cells. You have people with laser beams like in Fantastic Voyage. Shout out to Raquel Welsh, who passed away uh, recently, who was uh, actually, you know, despite the cultural construction of who she was, she was an extremely intelligent and witty person, and I loved listening to her interviews. Uh, she was also a pretty good actress who worked it when she, she worked the system as she saw it, and I have no... Uh, no criticism of her for living in the world that, in which she found herself. It was, however, a great movie, Fantastic Voyage, in which they hammered away at a brain tumor by going inside the brain, shrinking themselves down. Honey, I shrunk the scientists. And going after that tumor with a laser beam um, on, I might add, a very long, large extension cord, which in retrospect looks kind of hilarious. Uh, yeah, laser beams, YouTube laser beam scene, Fantastic Voyage, worth a look. Uh, all right, so enough about fighting cancers, except to say that you don't have to kill the cancer cells with a laser beam. One person, a Quaker, con- uh, very committed to nonviolence, actually saw his uh, cancer-fighting cells as ambulance workers, basically carrying away the sick cells to take them to the hospital where they could be healed. And hopefully, one day, that's what we'll be doing, reprogramming the cancer cells. And that's a lot of what natural cancer cell management looks at in uh, functional medicine, is making the environment an adverse environment for cancer. And you can do a lot with stress reduction and diet in that respect. But we won't be discussing those today. Our first story is about social media and the lives of adolescents. Uh, This morning, I was at a coffee shop in town, and uh, it was interesting. The uh, two people in the coffee shop with me were undoubtedly, I would say, in their early 20s, maybe late 20s at the most. Uh, 
one of them had a headphone had headphones on, and I don't quite know what he was listening to. The other one was engaged in a very loud one way conversation with headphones on, uh, and uh, talking to her computer and listening uh, to the the person, but you know, in a very social context. So uh, that was interesting. And uh, over the weekend, I was at a place where, as I wandered around, everyone was talking to themselves. They weren't, of course, talking to themselves, but it felt like I had, more like I was walking around in a land of schizophrenic people who wouldn't make eye contact and uh, didn't actually know I was there. Uh, it's getting a little spooky out there for us uh, older people, and if we seem a little tweaked or <laughs> fidgety, uh, that may be why I sometimes am beginning to feel like I'm in an episode of the Twilight Zone. Oh, well, go with got to move with the times. But the addictive potential of these applications, which is what this story about, is what brought to mind that anecdote. Uh, these have uh, a teenager basically needs to live in a social world and they need communication with their peers. That's an important part of development. It's support, you know, that's how you do your courting and your sexuality. And of course, your brain is, you're just beginning to develop it, a kind of intellectual curiosity and abstract thinking in your teens as you move from childhood to older adolescence. That's what's developing. And it's clearly being shaped differently, and the neuroplasticity of individuals is shifting. But we're really, we're, we're engaged in a colossal social experiment here, and, and we aren't really clear on what the effect is on brain wiring, but it's clear it's having some effects. And the addictive aspect of it is concerning because, of course, if you're addicted to likes or you're addicted to that kind of recognition, and that's how you get your positive enforcement, then you're you're trapped in a cycle that you can't break free from, and you're perhaps a little bit more easily exploited. Currently, 90% of U.S. adolescents use social media. Uh, 75% have at least one social media profile, and more than half admit to visiting social media sites at least once daily. We we uh, use that word admit when we're taking a medical his- history. Uh, the patient admits to taking two drinks a day. When you use the word admit uh, or acknowledges or states, you're actually conveying a certain uncertainty about the number. So let's say that it's at least half and it and uh, the average is seven hours daily on the phones, not including time de- uh, devoted to online schoolwork. Uh, eight to twelve-year-olds are up to five hours of daily phone use. That's a lot. That's a, that's a lot of your free time if you're not using your phone in school and you're actually getting eight hours of, of sleep a day. And you're well. Let's see. That's about fourteen hours a day when you can't use your phones officially anyway, if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. So that leaves 10. So that leaves three if you're a teenager to get everything else done. That's, um, well, obviously sleep is suffering is all I can say. Uh, 39% is passive, 25% on, 25% on social media, uh, 25% is on gaming and browsing, uh, Boys engage in video games about eight times more often than girls, and girls engage in social media about twice as often as boys. And uh, Canada did a study where they looked at uh, just is there a problem with depression and anxiety, and they found a robust dose-response relationship between social media or watching television. But it could just be the opposite, not that these things are causing um, anxiety, or sh- uh, but that uh, shy and depressed people are more likely to use social media. Uh, interestingly, though, there's no relationship between mood and anxiety symptoms and time spent on video games. I found that fascinating, and it's one of the reasons why uh, social media has a bigger impact on girls. Uh, one study from the United Kingdom 
demonstrated uh, severity of depressive t- symptoms was directly correlated uh, between uh, time spent on social media. And uh, boys were also affected, but girls were much more predicted. And to the degree to, the, to which an adolescent's sense of well-being is connected to social media uh, in a survey, that's the variable that most strongly predicts an association with worsening depressive or anxiety symptoms. Uh, people don't present their real selves on Instagram and on social media for the large part. I'm choosing Instagram because of the amount of curating. Uh, and also, just another anecdote, I might as well float around here. I've been traveling since my early 20s. And when I was traveling in my early 20s, I would have, it was very, very easy to talk to other young people. You would fall into a conversation um, on the bus, on standing in line to get on the train. You'd have these short little travel friendships where you would watch each other's luggage and maybe, you know, run into each other at the youth hostel and make plans to uh, get together at, at, for for lunch at this restaurant one person knows about after you all visit the Parthenon that morning. Okay, yeah, and it's on that street. And th- this was just how you traveled. And as you moved from country to country, uh, around Europe, I would see the same people sometimes and occasionally uh, find, you know, relationships, as I say, relationships of convenience where you would hang out and sort of be a travel group for a few days. And this was just normal. And you had little bulletin boards at all the youth hostels and the hotels that were frequented by young people looking for someone to travel with to Egypt, you know, and traveling together was safer, particularly for women. And it just made sense. And the communication and the encounters were were great. But they were also real. And you also got to see people under position, uh, conditions of stress. And when I go now and I watch young people who are traveling, I don't see them traveling with each other. I I often see one person in a subordinate role the sort of the photographer, or they take turns being the photographer, and their interaction is mostly to stand in front of something and pose and get a good picture and then move on. And it, it's been amazing to me because I, <laughs> my favorite story is about the Mona Lisa, where I went to see the Mona Lisa in the Louvre and people would stand in line to get closer to the Mona Lisa. And as soon as they got to the front, they'd immediately turn their back on the painting and look at it in their screen with their face in front of it and play around with their phone to get the right angle, take a shot, turn back, look at the painting for like one, one thousand, two, and then turn to the side and get out of line and let other people move in and take their photo. And there are places now considered highly Instagrammable where the line is not to get into the monument. The line is to get to the place where you're supposed to take the picture. And honestly, I think that I think it's having a very bad effect on people's health. And I'm not sure we've even begun to plumb the depths of it. We're looking at, you know, things like depression, but I think our our form of engagement, our, our way of dealing with other humans are... Uh, the changes I hope will work out. I hope they will prove to be healthy and maybe get us out of the warlike modules and the tribalism. But I'm a little worried it's going to make it worse. And I, I don't know. I guess I'm rambling, so I'll stop and move to another science story. Let's talk about the virtual workplace. So an article that came out in the new scientist in, uh, over the summer, uh, about the virtual workplace and, you know, is this going to be a thing? Looked at 18 volunteers. They were all university staff or researchers and their average age was 29. And they were challenged to work a full five hour week, eight, uh, eight hour days, uh, eight hours days with a 45 minute lunch break wearing an Oculus Quest 2 VR headset. And then they had a week in uh, a regular week doing the same work in their office. So uh, 
it didn't go well. Uh, first of all, two of the participants dropped out immediately because they got migraines and started vomiting. Those who actually stuck with it uh, found the VR experience considerably worse. 42% more frustration and anxiety and 48% more eye strain. And critically for the employers, the VR group was 16% less productive. Uh, so maybe it'll get better with higher resolution, more lightweight designs, and of course, time and adaptation. But there's going to be inherent problems here with the virtual workplace. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. Where I think the virtual workplace, where, where I think virtual reality really has potential is kind of the same place where I see psilocybin <laughs> having potential, which is when your own, when your actual reality really stinks, like you're in severe pain or you're dying alone in a room. Uh, I think virtual reality is an excellent idea. I think taking you out of your own head when your own headspace is not good is a great idea. I think trying to create a a virtual uh, reality as a workspace has serious issues, and it uh, yeah it'll work for some people, but I really am uh, reporting that my latest uh, experience with virtual reality, which was a uh, exhibit up at the San Francisco de Young Museum, was underwhelming. And it's cool that they're trying it, but it's uh, nothing like real reality. So, at least as far as I'm concerned, I'm staying on the planet. So, I mentioned a more healthy, gluten-free flour. This one is made from sweet potatoes. Way better than tapioca, by the way. Tapioca is actually a very unhealthy uh, starch. But on the contrary, uh, sweet potatoes have been looked at for gluten-free flours. And the trick, and of course, this is a frankenfood. Sweet potatoes are a potato. They are a root. You can chop them. You can turn them into, uh, you can chop them up. You can fry them. You can do all kinds, you know, turn them into a uh, mush. But once you start drying them, extruding them, uh, air frying them, you're you're starting to train to treat them in different ways. Now there's several other gluten-free options. So, so at the top, this is a frankenfood, but it's probably one of the better ones because the tuber is packed with antioxidants and nutrients, and it has a decent flavor. So, turns out that there that the drying temperature and how you grind it affects it quite a bit. So it, they were looking at. Uh, drying it at either 176 degrees Fahrenheit or 122 and grinding it once or twice. Uh, regardless of the drying temperature, uh, grinding once was just perfect. It made it, it damaged just enough of the starch to open it up and make it so that you could use it for a fermented product like a gluten-free bread. Uh, if you grind it twice, you've got a thickening agent. So good for porridges or sauces. Uh, something I think that the home cook wants to play around with sweet potatoes uh, might uh, look at. The high-temperature dried single ground had the highest antioxidant capacity, and it was uh, substantially higher than store-bought uh, potato, uh, sorry, sweet potato frankenbread or with wheat flour. So we're getting somewhere where we're actually going to make a... Uh, make better foods out of good foods, uh, or at least make imitations of foods that are sinful foods and maybe make them a little less sinful. Uh, Better living through chemistry, I guess. Then, of course, there's when chemistry backfires. There's a scene in The Graduate, which was an old movie with Dustin Hoffman way, way, way before Tootsie, in which he plays a young college boy, just fin- just graduating college, and he goes to a party at his parents' house. It's a cocktail, par- uh, no, it's a cocktail party, 
and everybody's hanging out at the swimming pool being very 1960s and getting drunk and smashed on cocktails, which are back in fashion again, I hear. Anyway, or maybe they've gone out of fashion again and include in, in favor of uh, pale ale. But uh, getting back to the graduate, a man, business type, smoking a cigar type, you know, comes up, says, plastics, young man, the future is in plastics. And really, in the 1960s, the future was in plastics. Plastics have permeated every aspect of our existence and are found everywhere on the planet, from the deepest, darkest Amazonian jungle to the highest peaks of Mount Everest and uh, the pristine snows of the Himalayas. So guess what? Plastics are everywhere, including inside our bodies. So a few years ago, there was some research done that showed th- that the cord blood phthalate level in males correlated directly with the distance between the base of the pen- penis and the anus. Now, when you develop your male genitalia in utero, it starts out as female genitalia, and then it changes, right? The clitoris enlarges and a effectively becomes the penis the dis- the the vagina of course disappears and and the internal part of the vagina in the front uh, essentially becomes the shaft of the penis while the clitoris pretty much morphs into the tip of the penis meanwhile the vulva swells and becomes the container for the testicles, which while all of this other stuff is happening, the testicles are migrating from, uh, well, they start off right next to the adrenal glands, way, way the heck up in the abdomen, migrate their ways da- way down. They either stop about two thirds of the way down and become ovaries, or they keep going and descend into the lips of the vulva, and, which fuses and becomes the scrotum. Meanwhile, to make room for the testicles, the distance between the base of the penis uh, and the rectum stretches out. Does it stretch out all the way? Well, usually. But is that distance significant? Well, it turns out it correlates quite well with later fertility. And as you may be aware, fertility in males has been declining drastically in terms of sperm count since we first started tracking it. In fact, the sperm count now is about a third on the average of what it was at the turn of the 19th century into the 20th, which is a little bit of a spooky fact. And it obviously wasn't just plastics back then. So hard to know exactly when that change starts. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember what the research shows, but it's mid 20th century, about the time of the emergence of plastics everywhere. Uh, Certainly could be a factor. We know that phthalate exposure correlates to both fertility and anal genital uh, distance in males. And now another study uh, done by the Michigan School of Public Health in Ann Arbor looked at phthalates and diabetes and found strong evidence that the concentration of phthalates uh, in the urine correlated very strongly uh, with diabetes. This study was done with urine collected over uh, way back in uh, the early 2000s. And then later on, they went to about six to 10 years out and looked at whether those patients uh, developed diabetes. And what they found was white women exposed to high levels of certain phthalates had as much as a 63% higher chance of developing uh Diabetes. On the other hand, and I think find this interesting and perplexing, the the harmful chemicals were not linked to diabetes in black or Asian women. Uh, so the levels of phthalates did not correlate with diabetes rates. This is a very interesting finding and needs to be looked at carefully. Uh, possibly, maybe related to detoxification or some other third variable. Uh, income level could certainly be a factor, but why would it be? Uh, would, could it be that it's protective of a certain uh, of a certain economic class, uh, and therefore it's a? But it does it doesn't really make sense in 
So maybe we need to study that further. But it's sort of interesting. Being a white woman, I found it interesting. The email comes from Tim. And uh, Tim is a regular listener. I occasionally get email from him that I read on the air. And sometimes I uh, don't find the sources credible. So I don't read them. Uh, This from the March 2023 Atlantic. I think I'd consider that uh, credible. Uh, I'm trying to decide if this is a almost a haiku. Reality is blurred. Boredom is intolerable. Everything is entertainment. It's funny. Uh, Marshall McLuhan, a commentator on uh, around television culture in the early... Uh, I, I just realized I sounded a lot like Marshall McLuhan uh, railing at the vast wasteland of television just now. And uh, maybe I am. <laughs> okay, now couple of short stories about the benefits of selenium supplementation in radiotherapy. These were both published in very high-level peer-reviewed journals, integrative cancer therapies, and also radiation oncology. A review, this, this second one, looking at uh, selenium supplementation in patients receiving radiotherapy. Now, in cancer, radiation damages cancer cells by direct ionization of DNA and by indirect effects by causing reactive oxygen species from bouncing off other molecules that happen to be sitting around. And uh, selenium is a trace element. It's an essential nutrient, and it's uh, preventative for uh, reactive oxygen species uh, detoxification. it, It, in other words, assists with detoxification by uh, having, by assisting with phase two uh, conjugating enzymes, so you're basically getting rid of tar- of uh, toxins, and you're also increasing a tumor suppressor protein called p53, and you're helping with DNA repair. Selenium has a lot of good benefits. So overall, in sixteen studies. Uh, reviewed in this particular article, they looked at levels of selenium and selenium supplementation. What they found was when selenium is used at a dose from 500, sorry, 200 to 500 micrograms a day, it did not reduce the effectiveness of chemotherapy. That's why this is so important, because oncologists and radiation oncologists are very worried that if they give something that's an antioxidant, that it might actually impair the effectiveness of the toxicities. But in fact, it uh, did the opposite. Certain cancers actually showed a benefit. Like, for example, in this article, which was looking at uh, gynecologic radiation therapy. So these were patients who had uh, pelvic cancer of various sorts, and they looked at disease-free survival and overall survival. Uh, these were can- mainly cancers of the cervix, and they looked at the selenium levels at the onset, and they had controls, and it was randomized. So when they and they gave these patients selenium after their therapy, uh, or during their therapy, and also after their therapy. And this went for 10 years, so they have 10-year survival, proving that the, uh, that the overall survival rates for patients who got the selenium group was actually higher than patients who were uh, in the control group. Although this did not reach statistical significance, it's still a trend that I think bears noting because trends usually get bigger when you have more people. And this was a study that only looked at 81 patients. Uh, it'd be very interesting if it looked at 800 because I think that difference between 55% and 42% would quite likely have reached statistical significance. 
So the take-home here is if you have to have, I hope you don't have to have radiation therapy, but if you do have to have radiation therapy, uh, by all means, take some selenium while you're doing it. Also, while you're at it, take some L-glutamine. Glutamine is an amino acid, and it helps with the lining of the oral mucosa, the, the esophagus, the stomach, and the colon, all areas that are drastically impaired in a lot of chemotherapy because they are rapidly growing cells, and most chemo, chemo does, put, does go after rapidly growing cells. So we're going to spend a little time uh, looking, talking about uh, cancer therapies, and I wanted to uh, talk a bit about a new uh, RNA therapy that's been invented for ovarian cancer. Now, ovarian cancer is, uh, of course, a very deadly cancer because it's often caught late. And these researchers actually used the same kind of technology and the same kind of principles that were used in the development of the SARS RNA vaccines. And even though this mRNA technology is still in its infancy, uh, this was basically uh, a really interesting study. These were patients who had been, uh, were at advanced when their cancer was discovered, so it had passed beyond the ovary into the abdominal cavity. And you really what you can do for people is you take out as much of the cancer as you can. That's called debulking. But you've essentially got little tiny tumors on the entire inside of the uh, intestines, on the surface of the intestines, but also on the inside of the abdominal cavity. And so chemotherapy does strangle many of those little tiny cancers. It really looks very, very much like bacteria in a Petri dish when you look inside a uh, a pelvis or an abdomen when it has this kind of cancer. And you do see uh, wasting in these patients. They Those cancers use energy, and they steal energy uh, from the people. So even though a person may not have nausea and may be eating as much as they can, they lose fat, they lose muscle mass, and the cancer it, sometimes it's a race between the cachexia, the starvation caused by the cancer and the other effects of the cancer and it's the cachexia that kills 30% of patients. So researchers looked are looked at lipid nanoparticles which are capable of delivering messenger RNA. And they wanted to trigger the production of a protein called folistatin. So uh, these lipid nanoparticles are, in, uh, are given by injection. And it works against another protein that the cancer cells are producing. And it prevents the buildup of abdominal fluid with cancer cells in it. It delays dele- disease production. Uh, progression, and it actually causes the cancers to change from being sticky little masses growing against the peritoneum to small, solid tumors that don't adhere, that don't stick to anything, so they can be removed and washed out. So this is uh, being used in combination with standard chemotherapy, and they're doing it in, you know, animals at this point, but it's very promising work, and it's just the beginning of this new mRNA uh, weaponization, I guess we'd like to call it. With respect to cancers, we've been weaponizing a few things. Uh, so let's, uh, let's talk about one of the most exciting but also most double-edged therapies, the immune checkpoint inhibitors. We've addressed this issues uh, somewhat before, and... Immune checkpoint inhibitors basically go after a thing that's made uh, by cancer cells and by T cells that's part of the controlling mechanism for the immune system called an immune checkpoint. And what it does is it slows down the immune reaction and keeps it from getting out of control. But when cancer cells produce large numbers of this signal, it obviously impairs the ability of the immune system to recognize and fight the cancers. 
It reminds me of an old of the of an old fairy tale, like the pre Disney Hans Christian Andersen version of the Little Mermaid. Which, just to remind you, uh, Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales are definitely not for children. We have children dying of exposure in you know hallucinating while the, while they die of exposure in the snow, things like that. And the Little Mermaid actually, in order to get her legs. She has to give up her voice, and she has to endure stabbing severe pain in the legs that she grows, so that every step is agony. Yeah, a a bit of a Faustian bargain, that. And one of the problems with immune checkpoint inhibitors is that they prevent the immune system from being adequately controlled, so they cause... uh, hyperimmune reactions, cytokine storms, and uh, about 1% of them, about 10% of people who get these drugs have to be hospitalized with reactions, and about 1% of people who get these drugs die of the drugs, and about 40% of the people taking these immune uh, checkpoint drugs develop chronic immune complications, most often immune arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, or endocrine uh, dysfunction, thyroid failure, basically, because autoimmune thyroiditis is a very common side effect. These drugs are used a lot. Uh, they also can cause things like hepatitis and colitis. Uh, drug-induced, it, it, they can cause uh, dysfunction of the adrenal gland, and they can cause myocarditis, inflammation of the heart which if you get that, it's fatal between one quarter and a half of the time. So we're looking at a very double-edged drug, and so we're looking for other alternatives, maybe using lower doses of this in combination with other agents. And let's move to this other agent, which is a a new soldier, sort of a a new cell on the block, uh, a recently discovered new cell, Uh, Researchers at the Sloan Kettering Institute reported in Nature, this was uh, back a couple of months ago, uh, a a new immune soldier that could be a good target for immunotherapy. These soldiers are called killer innate-like T cells, not not killer C T cells. Those are the cytotoxic T cells. And that's because they are not vulnerable. They don't make immune checkpoints. So you won't need immune checkpoint inhibitors if you use these. The other thing about these cells is that they penetrate very deeply into tissues where cancer can be hiding. So they, they go deep and they go far and they be better at getting into the center of solid tumors than the conventional killer T cells. Uh, we've talked earlier about CART therapy, which is where you take the killer's T-cells and you train them to attack an antigen of the cancer. In this case, if we can harness these innate-like t- killer T-cells, we won't have to do the training. Now, they used a bunch of uh, of studies to characterize these cells, and they made some really interesting discoveries. As I said, they don't make immune uh, checkpoint inhibitors, so they don't, uh, they aren't, they aren't targeted by that uh, compound if the cancers start making it. The other thing that's really interesting is that they, that word innate. Now, conventional killer T cells recognize mutated antigens on the surface of cancers. These are called neoantigens. They're non-self proteins, but the killer T cells have the ability to recognize a much broader range of normal antigens, and they really behave more like innate immune cells, the ones that protect us from viruses when we haven't seen those viruses before. And they don't circulate in the blood uh, and move into the lymph nodes. They actually kind of migrate like security guards through the entire body seeking out uh, danger. And one of the paradoxes here is we do not understand why these don't cause autoimmunity. And it seems it's because they they are very, very sensitive to an interleukin called IL-15 that is like an odor that cancer cells have. It's an interleukin that's produced 
primarily by cancer cells. And when you take it out, when you mutate the cancer cells with CRISPR and you remove the ability to make IL-15, these killer T cells don't have an anti-cancer effect. So we think we've identified uh, this. It's not produced in healthy tissues. So if that isn't present, these the, even though it's recognizing the antigens, it isn't spurred to attack. Danger Will Robinson, I'm going to call it the Danger Will Robinson uh, interleukin because it warns the, the T cells that there's a cancer around and then those cancers go looking for it and are able to recognize it. Paradoxically, uh, they don't cause autoimmune disease. So this doesn't run into the same problems as the immune checkpoint inhibitors, but maybe they could be used together or maybe they could replace the CART therapy immune checkpoint inhibitor uh, approach, which is becoming more and more common and has marginal benefits, really, when you do the two. And in terms of, you've got to stop and think, right? Disease-free survival, right, is different than uh, absolute survival. So if you die without your cancer because the chemo killed you, that would count as a success in disease-free survival. But I wouldn't count that actually as a success. Hormone therapy is used to treat prostate cancer that's spread to other parts of the body, but eventually many patients develop resistance to hormone therapy, causing their disease to become more aggressive. And uh, the aggressive disease starts moving to other parts of the body. In spring of 2021, uh, Dr. Cecilia Kano of the University of Colorado Cancer Center received the IDEA Award from the U.S. Department of Defense's peer-reviewed cancer research program to develop to investigate the role of mitochondria in metastatic prostate cancer and recently just published an article in Molecular Cancer Research. They discovered that tumor cells use mitochondria to control their growth and basically avoid growing too fast if, so that they don't outgrow the uh, food supply. They actually have, uh, if they detect stressors or things that are dangerous to the tumor cell, the tumor cell is capable of modifying its behavior and it modifies the mitochondria. So they use this pathway to slow down their physiology so that they can uh, relax and regroup after a stressor. And they found a mitochondrial protein called Miro2 overexpressed in metastatic prostate cancers. And uh, it helps those cancers tolerate conditions where the growth of normal cells would be prevented for lack of fuel or lack of oxygen. So it allows them to go into a slow growth mode, which would stop other healthy cells in their uh, tracks. So the idea here is to see whether or not they can manipulate this Miro2 and block it, which would allow the cancers to revert to their vulnerable mode and be eliminated by cancer therapy. You can see we've we've got so much more physiology now that we are able to understand and, well, I'll use the word weaponize, but maybe I should just use instrumentize in order to attack the physiology of the cancer. Recent studies have established that reprogramming of lipid uh, metabolism is an emerging hallmark of many cancers. So this is providing opportunity for therapeutic uh, targeting. So alterations in metabolic processes are a hallmark of cancers. The the so-called Hall-Pike effect, which is where cancers drop into bacterial metabolism. So they stop making... Uh, 38 molecules of ATP from a from a molecule of glucose, and they and they revert to making just a few, like seven or nine. I don't remember. I'm sorry, Mrs. Tillett. I've forgotten my AP biology details. Cancer cells have to survive in an inhospitable environment. The acid that they've created for themselves, and they adapt to this acid environment by by creating little lipid bubbles. Uh, you see an increased breakdown of glucose, 
and there's poor blood flow, so you get lactic acid as a byproduct of glycolysis. And so they activate uh, a recycling uh, process and accumulate that lactic acid in globules of fat. And the fat droplets accumulate in in the tumor cells. And these lipid droplets are actually protective. They, there's a, a protein marker for them called PLIN2, and they, they are produced when a protein in the cell membrane of the cancer cells recognizes the presence of the acid environment. So it sends a signal to the, uh, to the nucleus to start to lead to the production of enzymes that start producing these lipid dro- uh, droplets. And so they thought, well, I wonder if we can target that. This is highly expressed in breast tumors, and so it's associated by with disease progression. So they targeted this OGR, the recognition cellular membrane protein, to see if they could reduce the lipid droplets. And it worked really, really well. Uh, if you, and they also found that this this PLIN two was a marker for aggressive tumors. But when they blocked it. Uh, they reprogrammed the process, and the cancers stopped growing. It caused a growth arrest because they were no longer able to grow in their acidic environment. So we're making some really, really amazing threat uh, advances here, and many of them will probably go through a period like the one we're currently experiencing with the immune checkpoint inhibitors. I think next week I, it's going to be a little complicated, but it's sort of a uh, process discussion about how the new, how what the brave new world of drug development looks like now that the FDA has allowed drug companies to find a loophole to the traditional process. And so we've got all kinds of drugs coming up out that may or may not be ready for prime time. Uh, but that, and that's going to be the future for the foreseeable uh, future because I just don't see institutions changing their spots anytime soon for a lot of reasons. Uh, Washington is slow. So tumor cells are really good at evading the immune system. Obviously, we've been talking about immune checkpoint inhibitors and the production of PD-1 that literally turns down the immune response, but they also wear disguises. They develop efflux uh, mechanisms that allow them to flush chemotherapy more readily out of their out of themselves to avoid the toxicity of them. Uh, they can they actually produce disguises and you know, mimic like the wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, it's amazing what they manage to do. Evolution happening in the bodies of the cancer patient, uh, competing for survival and coming up with better and better and more and more creative fixes. So one of the uh, things that almost all cancers produce is a protein called KRAS, K-R-A-S. But the problem with KRAS is we can't target it with chemotherapy or immunotherapy or CART therapy or any of our current weapons because it isn't on the outside surface of the cancer cells. Instead, instead, it's on the inside where the immune system doesn't usually go. Uh, so there's a, a, a drug called uh, sotarasib, which got prim- preliminary if you, a approval recently for the use in lung cancer. And what's exciting about this drug is it's low toxicity and its mechanism of action, what, it typically, what we typically are trying to do is block uh, hormones or block things, uh, enzymes, or block things that the cancers are making. And KRAS, because it's inside cancers, was always considered uh, undruggable. But this new drug, Sotorasib, uh, actually gets into the cell and changes the production, like we talked about the lipid particles, it changes the way that KROS is is processed after it leaves the nucleus as messenger RNA and it's going through its processing. It changes the processing of the drug such that it 
now has a marker on it that causes it to be taken to the surface of the cell and treated like a surface antigen. So now you have a a new KROS, a basically targeted, mutated label that floats to the surface of the cell. And just like a regular blood, you know, blood compatibility uh, or, you know, the histocompatibility proteins that we use for organ transplant and blood transfusions to make sure that the immune system doesn't attack the cell. Well, now what we're doing is putting this KRAS, which is not made in healthy cells. We're dragging it to the surface where it can be recognized. And it's like putting a big eat me flag on the outside of the tumor. Uh, researchers think that this this is a low toxicity drug, and it's currently being it's approved for use in lung cancer patients. So this one's much further along in terms of development than some of the other stuff we've talked about this evening. And I am excited to be able to bring you uh, that information. Got just a minute. I'll tell you that they just changed the recommendations against getting Cinevisc or hyaluronic acid injected into your knee. This was a strong recommendation by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Uh, By the way, this recommendation was made 10 years ago. Guess what? Doctors are still getting paid to inject this stuff. Uh, It's being driven substantially by physicians, assistants, and nurse practitioners because these are physician extenders. Uh, So the doctors can pay them their salary, and they can make 6 to 12 times their salary in a day, by day, uh, which represents a profit center for the doctors. So whether the patients are benefiting or not, somebody's benefiting. As they like to say, uh, it's hard to get a man to believe something when his paycheck depends on him not seeing the truth of it. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.